What kind of impact can a single life have on the history of the world? Uh, if we were to try to make a list of people whose lives have impacted humanity, uh, who really made a difference, I think it's certainly any list that we might compile would, uh, if it wouldn't be led by the name of Jesus, certainly it would include Jesus of Nazareth. There's no single life that has had a greater impact on human beings and about and society in general uh, than the relatively short life of Jesus. Uh, I'll take a couple minutes this morning and talk about the life of Jesus. Uh, what kind of life did he live? When we think about the the biography of Christ as we know it, uh, how does it compare with the biography of other individuals who maybe would be recognized as being uh, very important individuals or at least uh, very influential individuals? Jesus of Nazareth was raised in uh, humble Jewish surroundings in the Roman-controlled Judea and Galilee. Uh, He never traveled more than 200 miles from his birthplace. Uh, During his ministry of preaching, he gathered a rather small group of relatively insignificant individuals for his disciples or his closest followers. After a ministry of about three years, uh, he was ostracized by the Jewish leaders and he was killed or executed for violating religious laws of his own people, executed by the Roman government under which he lived. During that time, Jesus of Nazareth never sought political power, never attempted a rebellion against the uh, powers of the, of the day. He never received any acclamations, any particular uh, following from those political leaders that were around him. He never earned an educational degree. He never invented anything. He never impacted society with his great intellectual pronouncements. He accumulated no personal wealth. He never raised an army. He never conquered any territory. never occupied any land. In fact, there is no evidence that Jesus even owned a piece of property at the time in which he lived on this earth. So from the standpoint of his physical life and his surroundings and the environment in which he was born and which he lived his relatively short life, There's no evidence that Jesus would ever have any influence in society around him, that he would ever impact the world. But what we recognize is that he has. The centuries later, you and I are either gathered in this place because of Jesus' life, because of who he was and what he did in that time in which he lived. What is the Christian to believe about Jesus? What does the Christian believe about Jesus of Nazareth? Christianity as a religion, looking at it from the standpoint of being a religion, Christianity is rooted in historical facts. It is not rooted or based upon feelings or mysticism that the history of the world and the history particularly of this single individual is at the very heart of what Christians believe. That those who became Christians confessed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah that he was the Christ, that he was the Messiah long awaited by the Jewish nation. Those who became disciples of Jesus as well confessed that this Jesus of Nazareth was not just the Jewish Messiah, but he was very much in fact the Son of God, that he was divine, God walking in human flesh. The words of the Old Testament prophets and the miracles that Jesus performed in that time in which he lived upon this earth confirmed that truth 
validated that Jesus was exactly who He claimed to be. So Christians confessed that. They also confessed, as time went on, in the historical actuality of Jesus' life. Christians confessed that Jesus was, and you and I believe, that Jesus was an actual person who lived in Palestine in the first century, that he had a body like ours, that he had human feelings, that he had all the things that go along with the human experience just like you and I would have today. Yet he was God in that flesh. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 2, John wrote late in the first century and he says, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. So our faith is based upon the historical accuracy of the biographies of Jesus given in the Bible and the fact that Jesus was an actual person. And the Holy Spirit has provided four separate biographies in the Word of God, Matthew, Mike, Mark, Luke, and John, that all present the life of Jesus exactly that way, giving different events that happened to Him. Not all events are included, and it's not a comprehensive biography. Certainly those biographies are not as comprehensive as you and I might write if we were going to describe someone who was important in the world. But the biographies of Jesus that are given by the Holy Spirit are recording actual historical events for the purpose of convincing individuals to believe not only that Jesus was actually a person and that he lived on this earth, but that he was God and that the very essence of his life would be the salvation of sinful men. So when we think about the life of Jesus, why is his life significant? What? Why is it so influential? And as Christians, why should we hold to Jesus' life as being significant? Well, there are a lot of different answers to that question. And certainly when we try to look at a single lesson on the life of Jesus, uh, we would become, we come over, become overwhelmed with the things that need to be said and should be said uh, about the significance, the purpose of Jesus' life. But certainly we would recognize as Christians that any value we place upon the life of Jesus, even centuries removed from the time in which he lived, is rooted in the fact that Jesus was not just a man, that Jesus is God, and that his life on this earth was part of the divine purpose of God to bring about the salvation of all men. So his significance reaches across generations and it reaches across centuries, even the time in which we live. We look back on who he was for the very purpose of understanding that who he was is relative today, that it's important today, that it's absolutely significant today, that we know who Jesus is and that he is not dead but he is yet still alive and that he is God himself, he is our Savior. Jesus was born of a virgin. Without the participation of an earthly father, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He received the power of the Spirit without measure and before miracles and signs to confirm the fact that he was God himself come down from heaven. He validated his words through the miraculous power of the Spirit so that men would believe. He fulfilled all the Old Testament messianic prophecies that were given about the one that was to come in individuals that wrote centuries before. So before he ever arrived on the scene, Jesus was described. He was described as a prophet, as a priest, and a king that was to come. And when he came on this earth, Jesus of Nazareth said, That's me they're talking about. I am that one. And personally claimed to be the coming Messiah. But Jesus' life was headed in a direction and a target that could never be denied. And that is that Jesus came to this earth not just to live a life, but to die a death. 
And His death on the Roman cross was a divinely planned atonement for the sacrifice of the sins of all the world. It was prefigured in all the sacrifices that had been made under the Jewish law given by God and prescribed by God so that there would be not many sacrifices but a single sacrifice that would be given for the sins of the people of the world. And Jesus came then to solve the solution, to solve the problem of sin once and for all through his death on the cross. But after three days, Jesus resurrected from that grave because he could not be held by it. And in coming forth from the grave, he conquered death and conquered all the consequences of sin that had come as a result of Adam's transgression. And Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God and he's making intercession for us. Now we review that and we understand that all about Jesus' life and maybe we, get a, we, give, we have in our mind a synopsis of who He was. We can't possibly come away with that without understanding that Jesus' life is at the center of everything that we believe and is absolutely significant in every way and every, every day that we live. But there's some things about Jesus' life I think that are important for us to notice in a way that I think maybe presents itself not so much from the standpoint of Jesus' sacrificial atonement and the purpose of his life as accomplished by the cross, but the character of Jesus himself. Sometimes individuals' lives are highly significant because, of the life, because they live a life that individuals desire to emulate because they live a type of life where individuals, you see, say, that's good, that's what I want to be, that's how I want to live. And, and reflected in their life then is something that passes the generations and goes beyond even the time in which they live to a time that's beyond. There's a sense in which that certainly applies to Jesus. The significance of Jesus is life, death, and resurrection as the, consummation, as the consummation of God's plan to redeem the world cannot be overstated. Paul says Christ is all and in all, Colossians 3 and verse 11. And Ephesians 1, Paul says all spiritual blessings are in Christ Jesus. And then goes on to explain the spiritual sacrifice that Jesus made for, for all of us. So truly, when we think about our own redemption, we recognize that it is in Christ alone that we stand. But I want to consider some of the characteristics of Jesus' life that not only define his life, but become foundational to our life as well, what we might think of as character traits. One thing I think we recognize about Jesus' life is he was a man of compassion. Now, sometimes compassion is not hard to spot. In fact, I think what we recognize most many times is a lack of compassion, or at least that becomes very evident in people's life when they do not care. So, if we ask the question, does Jesus care about the people around him, all of us would say, yes, you can't read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John about Jesus' life without understanding that he cared a lot about people. In, John, in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. There are a couple of times in scriptures in, these, in the story of Jesus' life when the author, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, sort of summarizes Jesus' life in just a few lines. And I think that's what Matthew's doing here. It says, well, what was Jesus' life like? Well, he, he went about teaching people. He was an individual, you see, that preached the gospel of the kingdom. He was a miracle worker and he healed people. But then there is this mentioning of 
The fact that Jesus was a compassionate individual. So when he looked out and saw the multitudes, he had compassion upon them. And at least six times in the Gospel accounts, it tells us that Jesus was motivated to do something by the fact that he had pity on people. And that's what the word compassion means. The word compassion is a compound word in the original language here, which means to have pity on another individual or to feel sympathy for the circumstances that they're in. Jesus' life was punctuated by the fact that he understood the human plight. He understood what people were going through, not only in terms of the emotional turmoil of their life, but on a deeper scale, understanding the consequence and the impact that sin was having on the human race and people's lives. And though Jesus would eradicate sin through his sacrifice and sin, and he would judge those who sin and rebel against him, the initial reaction of Jesus to the sinful position of man before God was pity. He recognized that, you see, people were vulnerable and they were lost. They were like sheep without a shepherd that left alone they could not solve their own problem and they were destined to die unless something was done, unless a shepherd could be found and some way they could be led in the way that they needed to go. In Mark chapter 6, that very same terminology is used to describe Jesus' attitude towards the multitude when he's getting ready to feed them. 5,000 individuals there with just a little bread and water, bread and fish that Jesus, that we talked about last week. And it says there, you see that Jesus had compassion upon them. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd, so he began to teach them. And we mentioned last week that that really summarizes this aspect of Jesus's the reaction of Jesus' compassion towards people, that he understood that those who were like a sheep without shepherd needed guidance from God himself. They needed to be taught. And so we think about ourselves. If Jesus was compassionate, what should be the attitude towards his people, towards those who call themselves by the name of Christ? Are we compassionate? What will we do if we truly understood the consequences of sin in our society? What would we do if we really had compassion on people that were lost without Jesus, that did not know, or were caught up in religious error? You see, that's what Jesus' life was all about. Another quality of Jesus' life was submission. John chapter 6 and verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus often asked about his purpose, about what he wanted to accomplish, about his place as a prophet or a teacher or a rabbi, about his relationship to God and the promises of the Old Testament. And over and over again, Jesus said, I did not come to do my own will, but the will of my Father who is in heaven. He was constantly involved in pointing individuals' attention back to God the Father. And Jesus voiced the direction and the attention of his own life in these often repeated words, that he lived his life with a purposeful submission to the will of God. Now that implies that Jesus understood or knew the will of God, but certainly it it provides for us a, a concept of what Jesus was accomplishing and attempting to accomplish in his own life. His purpose was to be submissive to his Father. And that submission was evidenced in several different ways. Not just the fact that he said, I came to do the will of my Father, but how he reacted to others who were not doing the will of the Father or ultimately were questioning and inquisitive about what the will of God was. It's shown at least three ways. One is that Jesus' submission in his life was evidenced by the fact that he found authority in the words of God alone. When Jesus was asked questions, and Jesus was asked a lot of questions, 
Some were legitimate. Some were people who were truly seeking to know the truth that God could, that Jesus could teach them. Other questions were not. They were there. They were meant simply to trick him, to try to throw him off, or to find something against him. But Jesus asked a lot of questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Who is my neighbor? What is the greatest commandment? Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And over and over again, in all of those questions, the first response of the Lord was to take people back to the Word of God. Do you understand what was written? Do you you recognize what was written? Or simply saying, it is written, and then giving them the Old Testament passage that related to their question. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now there's a pretty important question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? How many different answers would you get in religion today? Or how many people would give you that religion, that answer by saying, well, this is what I think. When Jesus answered that question, He said, he, he said what is written in the law? And what is your reading of it? What did God say? That's what it's all about. Is The authority is found in the words of God. Why? Because that's what submission is all about. We cannot understand or anyway practice submission without having a true unalterable devotion to what God has already written in His Word, what He's already said. Even when Jesus was facing His personal temptation, when Satan was out to get Him and presenting Him, you see, the, uh, the opportunity to do what was wrong, Jesus' answer always was on all three occasions, it is written. He was able to use and willing to use the Word of God as His own personal fortress against the intrusion of sin into His life. The other side of that is true as well. Jesus was not influenced by popular interpretations. He was not moved by traditional practices. He wasn't one, you see, who, was, who, who could easily be driven to one side or the other of an issue based upon how many people accepted it or how many people rejected it or what society was doing or what other people thought. His submission was to God's Word and God's alone. And in that sense, Jesus would tell us that God's voice alone settles all. Now, It's also seen in the aspect of personal humility. Jesus was submissive because he was willing to be personally humiliate himself for the cause of Christ and the cause of God. And in that sense, Jesus turned even his disciples' worldview upside down by teaching that greatness in the kingdom of God did not come through some hierarchical uh, establishment. It didn't come because one person was richer than another, because one person was more powerful than another. It didn't come because one person was smarter than another or even knew more about what God's Word actually said. What Jesus says that true greatness in the kingdom of God is defined by a person's willingness to humble himself and serve another person. What do you learn from the life of Jesus more than anything else that has clear consequence in your own life? Here's Paul's interpretation of that in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul's synopsis of the value of Jesus' life is centered in the fact that he humbled himself in order to accomplish the purposes of God. Now that humiliating experience of Jesus to come down of heaven and to inhabit physical flesh and go through all that a human being would do, even to the point of death, far transcends any humbleness that you and I could ever exercise in our own life. We could never humble ourselves because we don't start out where Jesus started out. 
But the fact that he did that, and that he did humble himself, Paul says, is one of his greatest lessons for us. In John chapter 13, what a poignant scene it is when the creator of the universe is assembled around the table of the Passover to celebrate the deliverance of God with his own people. And he gets down on his knees and takes a towel and begins to wash their feet. Can you put that into any kind of context? That the God of the universe is down on his knees? The one who created all things is bent over washing the feet of sinful men? Well, if we could peek into that physical scene at all and come to any way grasp it, even as it's related to us in the Scriptures, it would be helpful. Jesus says, this is not just me serving you. This is you serving each other. I'm doing this not just to show you how humble I am. I'm doing this so that you will humble yourselves and serve one another. That's the lesson Jesus says. And later on in chapter 14, Philip says, Jesus says, I'm here to show you the Father. And Philip says, show us the Father. Whatever you show us the Father, that's sufficient for us. And Jesus' response is pretty powerful. He says to Philip, have I been with you so long and you haven't seen the Father? What have I been doing except serving you? So the whole idea you see of God before men, the picture of the Father God that Jesus presents to us is a picture of voluntary humility for the service of another. Earlier in Philippians chapter 2, Paul made this connection. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not out for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And that's not hard to understand what Jesus is commanding there. But he's doing more than just commanding it. He is exhibiting it in his own life. And the third element here is that Jesus obeyed God at all costs. Now that's what submission is all about. Submission is about finding authority in the Word of God, being willing to personally humiliate myself for the cause of Christ and to obey God no matter what the consequences may be. A clear element of Jesus' submission, you see, was His emphasis upon this. And what I find so fascinating and somewhat tragically ironic is how many people in the world's perception of Jesus is that He didn't really care whether or not you kept the law. He didn't really care whether or not you obeyed God. Just so you felt good about yourself and your heart was okay, you felt your heart was okay with Lord God, all of those commandments and those laws really don't matter. And that's not what Jesus taught us at all. That's not what His life reflected. What Jesus would teach us is that the worst thing that can happen to any of us is to be cast into a devil's hell because we sin before God. He says it's better if you cut off your hand than to go to hell. Better off if you pluck out your eye if it causes you to sin than to go to hell. Because you cannot in any way survive before a holy God with unholiness in your life. So make it a very earnest effort in your life to make sure that you try to do what is right. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 19, whoever therefore breaks one of these least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does, teach them, does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now I want you to notice the connection there. Jesus had already said that greatness in the kingdom of heaven comes by serving another person, not in any other way other than humility. And yet he turns around and also says that those who are greatest in the kingdom are those who obey the commandments of God because that's what submission is all about. And that's what humility is all about. So Jesus, you see, his life was characterized by submission. Real quickly, a couple of other things. Suffering. 
Jesus' life was punctuated by suffering. In Isaiah chapter 53, he is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah spoke, you see, foretelling the coming of the one, the Messiah, who would live a life very different than what many individuals anticipated. Jesus lived a life of sorrows. He was a person who was despised. He was a person who understood what it meant to be rejected by other individuals and even to be betrayed. And what the Scriptures would point us to is that this suffering prophesied about Him and ultimately enacted in His life was commendable before God. That God was not only allowing Jesus to suffer, but was, that was part of the purpose for which He came was to suffer. Now Jesus' suffering is commendable in Scripture and presented that way. And it's righteous in its quality. Not because it's ordinary suffering, but because it's suffering for the purposes of God. A suffering that's commendable and sorrows that ultimately would make us righteous by their very presence in our life are not common sufferings. Everybody suffers. Some of us suffer more than others, but we all experience problems in life. But we're not all willing to suffer for the cause of righteousness. Suffering that is intentional, suffering that is done on purpose from the standpoint that it's willingly done and we could get out of it if we wanted to is a different kind of suffering. I think it boils down as well to the aspect of suffering for the cause of God and the cause of others. Peter later on spoke about this. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your fault you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For this you were called because Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that we should follow in his step who committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus' suffering was intentional. It was purposeful. Peter says he suffered for us. And because he suffered for us, he left us an example to learn how to suffer for other individuals, even for Christ himself. Jesus said, you must be willing to take up your cross and follow me. And he said that before there ever was a cross of Jesus. He was making, you see, a call to discipleship based upon the aspect of the willingness, not just to say, yes, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go, but saying, I'll suffer for you wherever you go. Another element of Jesus' life is sinlessness. Now, we might account this to the aspect that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was God himself. And there's a connection there. I don't think Jesus was sinless because he was the Son of God. I think he had full opportunity to sin and vulnerability to sin living in human flesh. He had a choice to sin just like you and I, but he did not sin. But the fact that he did not sin certainly was confirmatory to the aspect that Jesus was God, that he was not us in that sense. But in John chapter 8, in a controversy with his enemies, Jesus said this. He says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I do always the things that are pleasing unto him. You ever heard anybody say that? I never do anything wrong. If you heard somebody say that, I always do what God wants me to do. How would you, would you, would you say something to them about that? How would you react to that? Oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. You do everything right Let's back up, back up a little bit here. Nobody backed Jesus up. Nobody said, wait a minute, Jesus, I think we can talk about this a little bit more. 
That's a profound claim. Who could say that about themselves? Especially in the presence of your enemies. The people that want to destroy you more than anybody else who want to discredit you. They wanted to do that to Jesus over and over again. And He stands before them and says, I don't ever do anything the Lord doesn't want me to do. Later on in the discussion, He says, Is there anyone here who convict me of sin? John chapter 8 and verse 46. Anybody here? Nobody raised their hand. You see, there was no one to convict Jesus Christ. Here was their chance. Who would step forward and say, you did this wrong? Jesus lived his entire life without sin. Now that ought to impress us, and it does. But ought to challenge us as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, the apostle says, For he who made... For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become righteousness of God in Him. The idea of Jesus being made sin for us is more properly understood, I believe, as that He was made the sin offering for us, not that Jesus became a sinner or became guilty of sin, but rather that He became the sin offering for us. That's how the New Living Translation says it. To say that Jesus knew no sin then is to to indicate that He never had a relationship with sin in any way. He never committed a sin. The writer of Hebrews points this out several different ways and for at least two different purposes. The writer of Hebrews makes this point about Jesus concerning Jesus as our high priest. If Jesus is truly our priest and is a superior priest to any priest that's been before, then what should be said about him or what could be said about him that would show that? Jesus unlike Aaron, did not have to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. Every other priest that brought an offering to the altar that would shed blood, that shed the the sacrifice blood and put it on the altar was a sinner himself. You go out in all Israel, you're going to choose a person to be your priest. Maybe you choose the best one and God made those choices, but everyone that was out there was a sinner. But Jesus in Hebrew chapter 7, the writer of Hebrews says, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy and harmless and undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become the higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So we conclude what the Hebrew writer as well concludes in Hebrew chapter 4. For we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but one who has been in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. So both in his ability to associate with us in our sins and therefore be sympathetic to the fact that we sinner, Jesus is said to be one who tempted. Yet because he never succumbed to those temptations, because he lives sinless, he is higher than any priest we've ever had before and culminates ultimately, consummates every priest, the work of every priest that's ever come before him. But the writer of Hebrews would also tell us that Jesus is perfect or sinless in the context of being our sacrifice. Because Jesus is not only the one who brings the sacrifice before God, the atonement, the propitiation, He is that atonement Himself in His own blood. So the proper sin offering under the Levitical priesthood was to be a lamb without blemish. And Jesus offered Himself precisely as that sacrifice, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14. And at the end He says, that he, man, he was manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. He was the perfect sacrifice. So He offered Himself without spot or blemish to God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 
What's that mean to me? What's that mean to you? That Jesus never sinned. Is it just a side note? Something we can know about Jesus? That you know, uh, one of those things that comes up. That well, that's nice. Jesus never sinned. Well, certainly we recognize how that fits in to the fulfillment of the Old Testament typology, both as Jesus being our high priest and Jesus being ultimately our sacrifice. What that points out to me is that Jesus is different than me. Doesn't that say that to you? I'm not there. I'm not sinless. But I have to strive to be like Jesus, right? That Jesus is the ideal. He is the one, the example is set before me. I, as a Christian, I need to be like Christ. And yet Jesus was without sin. So there, therefore, even though I've already messed that up, and I'm already a sinner, unlike Jesus, the fact that Jesus lived without sin means that I must strive to live without sin as well. And that's Paul's point in Romans chapter 6. Grace is abounding. Should we sin because great Jesus is willing to forgive? God forbid. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 10, he, Paul goes on to say, For the death that he died, talking about Jesus, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Paul says, here's the reason why you shouldn't sin, because Jesus didn't sin. And because he died for the very cause of eradicating sin. But then there's love. How could you talk about the life of Jesus, characterize it without talking about love? Everything Jesus did was motivated by his incomprehensible love for everyone, every person, even his enemies. In Ephesians chapter 1, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And most of the people you talk about in the world about Jesus and what Jesus' life meant and what it characterized and what do you get from Jesus, most of them would probably land right here that Jesus was a person who exhibited love. We ought to love one another because that's what Jesus taught. And certainly that's true. In fact, the apostles would teach us that love was, from from the human standpoint, somewhat incomprehensible and undefinable before and apart from the sacrifice of Jesus. John says in 1 John chapter 3, By this we know love, because he, de- because he laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. Jesus saw that his love for, one, for, for other individuals demanded that we love each other. And there's no compromise on that. There's no rationalization on that in Jesus' teaching. Well, he doesn't say, well, you need to love them if they love you back. Or you need to love them if they're like you. Or you need to love them if they're Christians. You need to love them if they're good people. That's not the love Jesus has. That's not the love He characterized in His life. His love extended to everyone, even His enemies, even those who did not love Him back. Jesus died for every person. Now, what we recognize as we go back to this, the scene of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, that when Jesus talked about this aspect of humility and serving one another, that He ended up that discussion talking about His connection to love. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now that's where that lesson was going, John chapter 13. It was going to Jesus saying to his disciples, you must love. If you don't love one another, the world has an absolute legitimate right to say you are not disciples of Jesus Christ. There's not many times when we could 
You see, we couldn't hold up our credentials when the, when, the, when the world would say, you are not a disciple, you're not a follower of Jesus. Well, look, I come to services all the time, I've been baptized, I can show you where I obeyed the gospel, I sing hymns, I worship God. But Jesus didn't hold those up as credentials for you and I to possess. What he did hold up is whether or not we love one another. I think one reason is because that would be so absolutely obvious. You might not be able to look at me and know whether or not I've been baptized for the remission of my sins, but you can look at my life and know whether or not I love one another and love other people, can't you? You can see that about a person. And so Jesus holds that up and says, if you don't love one another, you, the world has an absolute legitimate right to say you are not my disciple. And you think about John 13. When Je- and John begins to describe for us the scene where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. In the first verse of John chapter 13, he tells us that Jesus was willing to do this because he recognized his disciples whom he loved to the end. He was standing amidst them as those, even among those one who was going to betray him and said he loved them all the way to the end. Love's not abstract. It's defined by what a person is willing to do for another person. And that's why he washed their feet. Because he loved them. Now, conclusion, real quickly. How significant is the life of Jesus the Christian today? Consider this statement in Romans chapter 5. Paul says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly, and for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were all still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. That's an interesting statement. Much more than we shall be saved by His life. I thought I was saved by the death of Jesus, that it was His death on the cross and His blood that was shed that was the payment for my sin. And we celebrated that and remembered that even in the Lord's Supper that a person is saved because Jesus died. Yet Paul says, after he talks about the fact that Jesus died, after he mentions the fact that Jesus gave His life for all men, he says, much more than that, you will be saved by His life. What's it mean by that? Is he saying the purpose of Jesus' life is that Jesus left an example and if we live like Him, that God will save us because we'll be good people? Is he saying that that's the true value of Jesus' life is in the example that He showed in His life and the things that He did? Or is He saying more? I think what He's saying here is that Jesus is not dead. That you and I, even though Jesus, we've been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ and we're brought in to being approved before God because Jesus went to the grave, He didn't stay in the grave. And the reason that you and I can continually be saved and righteous before God and ultimately saved in the end is because Jesus now lives an endless life, never to die again. So if I look and think about what is the quality of Jesus' life that is so significant to me, you see, this is where I end up. That Jesus became my high priest according to the power of an endless life. Therefore, He's able to save the uttermost, those who come to Him through God, since He always lives to make intercession for them. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8, It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. You see, is Jesus' life significant to you today relative to your circumstance? 
That's not just a discussion of a biography of a man who lived before. It's a discussion of a Savior who yet lives today. Jesus' life is significant because He's at the right hand of God. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not in Christ, the sacrifice that He made and all the qualities we mentioned and talked about, even His atonement, is of no value to you if you don't come to Him and live for Him now. Can we help you become a Christian? Be baptized in water, in, in water for the forgiveness of your sins and come into Christ. Let's stand and sing.